You're in 40 hours a week of meetings. Everyone here feels overwhelmed. Here's the news. You can't change things unless you're willing to change things. Who do you think sort of bears responsibility for making those cultures kind of enjoyable? Why should some places be good to work at? I was just interested in the mechanics of that. There have often been individuals that through their behaviour, sometimes more senior to me, sometimes colleagues that have been an inspiration. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to the Being Human podcast with Amelia Vegting and Jez Francis. Brought to you by Just Add Water. Hello, I'm Jez Francis. And I'm Amelia Vegting, and welcome to the Being Human podcast, where with special guests, we explore what it means to be human in this world we find ourselves living in. Well, here we are again, Amelia, time flies. After our last podcast recording, you were racing off to Glastonbury Festival, Mm. along with 200,000 or so other revellers and millions of us watching on TV. So tell us, what were your heaven and hell moments from Worthy Farm down in Somerset? (laughs) Okay, so heaven moments, well... Elton John, Jez, I cannot even begin to describe. And I don't think any words I say now are going to do the feeling of what it was like to be part of that crowd mm. any justice at all. We arrived at the pyramid stage around 4.30. So, you know, we've got a good four out and the a front? Mm, not quite. For the, there were some people there who were there from 4am wow. that morning. So, you know, they had the very, very front spot. We were a little bit further back, but we had our spot. And as all the next bands came on, You know, we were moving closer and closer and reserving our space and it was all getting tighter and tighter, having to do the balancing act of going and getting some food and then coming back and then going and getting a drink and coming back. And some of our friends left it way too late and we never saw them again. They couldn't get back to where we were. So So by the time Elton came on, were you still standing? (laughs) God. Yes, we were. And we continued to stand and dance away. Any surprises? Um, slightly different tone, but really took me away was Lewis Capaldi. Oh, yeah, yeah. I saw his um, set. Yes, it was really, really emotional. Uh, Have you seen his Netflix documentary? I haven't, but I I know the one you mean. Uh, Well, if you watch that documentary, having seen his set, it will really bring his story to life because he came on stage with his really large... Scottish personality and, you know, pretending to the audience that Ed Sheeran was going to come on and then then he didn't, you know, his usual banter. But as his performance went on, his battle with Tourette's just completely took over and he was unable to sing some of his, you know, best songs. But what was absolutely brilliant and what made us all so emotional and cry was the fact that an entire audience of people just all began to start singing, belting it out. And he just stayed on stage and watched, you know, the mm. tens of thousands of people sing back his words to him. So it it was incredibly emotional. You know, we all had tears streaming down oh, our face. You. But it was, yeah. it yeah, something I'll never forget, I don't think. There's something about that sort of togetherness that's created through a shared experience like that as well, isn't there? Yeah, I was seeing so many things afterwards about, you know, this is what humanity looks like and is a part of it was it was brilliant but actually one story i do have i think might make a very good boring things about me boring things about me for new listeners this is the part of the podcast where we delight in the dull the dreary and the downright boring parts of our lives 
So we bought a trolley in preparation of Glastonbury because reading all the blogs leading up to it is you need a trolley to take you from your car park. So we had filled it all up, had all of our bits in, and I think we had got slightly overexcited that we had a trolley and maybe a little smug. So we'd piled it up, perhaps a little too high. Anyway, so we arrived, had our tickets checked, turn around that first corner. (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) And the whole trolley just tipped on its side and the wheels that were at the front that effectively navigate you through both bent inwards. And for the next hour and a half worths of walk, we were having to take stuff out, swap over hands, be lifting the weight of the trolley with one arm. (laughs) I think the worst part of it was the look that everybody gave as we were walking past with this broken trolley. You sort of got eyes like, "Mm, good luck with that one. And we're like, yeah, this is very clearly our first time at Glastonbury. So not quite the togetherness (laughs) that you experienced during Lewis Capaldi's set. No, no, no. Once we got there, we then enjoyed it. But what about you, Jez? Well, most of my boring things about me stories that we've explored together so far Mm. haven't particularly sort of painted me in the best light (laughs) or or things I'm particularly proud of and so let's not change that (laughs) Uh, so uh, Bex and I were very lucky to get tickets to the Wimbledon Tennis Championships this month which Mm. we were both very excited about Um, so we got the train up there uh, got off the train we decided to walk up the hill from the station to the tennis club Um, via the supermarket to buy ourselves a nice picnic lunch. So we chose some sandwiches and some drinks and some strawberries because it's Wimbledon, yeah. Uh, And then we had an argument in the shop about flapjacks. (laughs) Often a topic of argument. Yeah, so I wanted to get the sort of single ones that you can buy and just sort of open and and eat. Mm. Uh, Bex insisted on getting one of those big tubs. Oh, that are usually by the checkout yeah, and areas. Yeah, I sort of pointed out that whilst better value for money, mm. they were th- those kind of tubs are inherently full of risk for me because <laughs> uh, I'd end up eating the whole thing. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Um, and she said to me, "That's impossible." Oh dear. So we ended up getting a tub. And how did you get on? I ended up eating the whole thing. So <laughs> partly because of my biscuit addiction, which mm. we've talked yeah, about in the past. Four. Yeah. But it was partly out of principle and stubbornness as well. Yes, you know. challenge accepted, Becky. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> so today we're exploring the universal experience of work, which, Jez, you and I do together, hence why we're doing this podcast together. So let me ask you, what is your favourite thing about working with me? Hmm... You, you have to take that long to work that out, do you? <laughs> Thanks, Jess. <laughs> okay, no, I'm, I'm pulling your leg. Uh, it's a good question. So a few things spring to mind. You know, we're we're at very different stages in our lives mm. and perhaps have a different outlook on things, which I really value. I, I always appreciate your views on, on things. Practically speaking, you're really good at the stuff that I find difficult. So, you know, getting started on stuff, finishing stuff, organising yourself and, mm. and others, me in particular, and sort of <laughs> making stuff happen. So that's great. But I suppose more importantly, perhaps most importantly, you know, it's, we have fun. Yeah, we do. And even when we've got a lot on work-wise, and I think that extends to everyone at Just Had Water as well. You know, we take our work incredibly seriously. Yeah. It's really important what we do. But we don't take ourselves too seriously. Yeah, definitely. And I think whilst we're on the subject of work, we should explore this with our guest. What do you think? What a good idea.
So our guest today is the celebrated author, podcaster, and former technology executive, Bruce Daisley. His 2019 book on improving work culture, The Joy of Work, was the Sunday Times number one business bestseller. His follow-up book last year, Fortitude, tackling the subject of resilience, has been named the best business book of the year by the Financial Times. Bruce also hosts Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat, an Apple number one business podcast on happiness and workplace culture. And prior to the fabulous books and the podcast, Bruce held senior executive roles at Twitter, Google, and YouTube. So, Bruce, welcome to the Being Human podcast. Thank you so much. Lovely to chat to you. Just before we get into all things work, do you mind if we just ask you a couple of questions to get to know you and what makes you tick? For sure, yeah. Let's do it. Okay, so what is the most adventurous thing you have ever done and what did you learn from that experience? My belief is that, look, you you go just give things a go, don't rule things out. So the, the way I got my first job was that I sent a cartoon CV of my life to 50 companies, actually. I drew this sort of four-page, almost like a Beano-style cartoon rather than like Spider-Man. I don't want to up my superhero credentials. It was it was very <laughs> much sort of... Um, and it was a very mediocrely drawn cartoon of my life. I sent that to 50 companies. I probably got... Um, about 10 people get in touch with me. I ended up doing work experience at a couple of places. And then I got two job offers, actually. One was conditional on me passing my driving test, and I failed my driving test. So uh, thankfully, I got another offer. But, you know, so I'm always of the philosophy that you've got to try those things. Tried to get Idris Elba for my book, printed a copy of uh, uh, <laughs> uh, with Idris Elba's name on it. And the idea there, I saw that he was opening a wine bar in King's Cross. So I went and had a couple of glasses of wine with my friend, not in his bar, but it, it wasn't open yet. I, w- I walked into Idris Elba's wine bar and I printed it up with like, you know, dreaming that you'd say a quote like this. Anyway, I turned up at the wine bar the day before it was opening because I thought they were having a launch party that night. I thought, okay, so Idris, he guaranteed to be here tonight, and he was. Yeah. Mm. But uh, I strode in there. I said, hello there. Idris has asked me to drop this off. Can you make sure he gets it the moment <laughs> he comes in? Anyway. Are you a confident person? No, not especially in those situations. Like, it was only the fact I had a couple of glasses of wine that I thought, I'll go. <laughs> I, I said courage. to my mate as I was chatting, chatting to him, I was like, okay, I need to be sort of ballsy here and go in here with a sort of a bit of, gusto because if i sort of sheepishly diffidently walk in there saying hi dropping a package off it's not going to have the same impact as if a bloke who looked like he owned the place turned up and he insisted Mm. that idris get presented with this the moment he arrived so not especially um but i just felt like in that scenario you you've got to go in and you've got to have a sort of a plan of attack of it. Really. Yeah. Yeah, you've got to give it a go. So, Bruce, if you could learn one skill instantly, what would it be and why? Yeah, my partner's uh, Lebanese, and so I'd love to speak Arabic, really. And I've tried, I tried, I tried Duolingo. The, the thing is, unless you live somewhere and unless you're speaking it every mm. day, to learn a language is sort of such a gradual process. Very nice. What is one trend that you wish would come back in style? The thing for me is probably the reading of books. I just don't think people read books anymore. And and look, I understand the reason why. Um, I remember when I I sort of used to have long commutes. And so as a result of that, you'd have to do something. And you're either going to sit out the window or listen to music. And so I'd I'd read books and I'd devour countless books every month. And, And I think that's kind of disappeared. Even now, my belief is that 
half the people who buy a book even open it. And then of those people, probably a fifth of them get more than halfway. So people just mm. don't read books. So it would be nice that trend coming back. Who has been um, the most influential in your life and how has that affected you? I think it's it's difficult for me to think of anyone specifically as a single person. Um, mm -hmm. I, I just generally, the thing the things that I am inspired by uh, I love it when people continuously exceed your expectations. And so, you know, I'll just give you one example of a sort of person right now. I, I don't know if you, um, you're a fan of Joe Lysett, but um, I'm an enormous fan of Joe Lysett. And not only his comedy stuff, but um, his Instagram is just a delight to follow. You know, he's, he, he, um, he posts art that he makes. He did some crockery the other day. He did something when he, when he was getting his kitchen extended. He wanted the local mayor to come and uh, open it, and uh, <laughs> and they they uh, they said we don't turn up to public events, but he, but he found they did turn up to charity events. So he announced that he was having a charity opening of his kitchen extension, <laughs> and he had a plaque made on the wall, <laughs> and he raised like a two thousand pounds for for dinner. Yeah, and the the mayor didn't come along because he was a celebrity. Uh, he came along. The mayor came along because that's like that. What and I, I just love that constant sense of like creativity in mundane settings, like sort of the everyday attempt to just how can you make today a little bit more interesting? How can you make, and I, I'm so inspired by that. So I, I'm mm. always inspired by people who try to exceed expectations. And that's just one example of it. Well, should we, should we sort Dive of in. switch our attention to the topic of today, Bruce, which is the sort of the very universal human experience of, of, of work. Absolutely. Um, so let me ask you, why does how we feel at work interest you personally? What sparked this passion in you? I don't know about yourselves, but I started, my first job was in a fast food restaurant and then my second job was in a, a bar in a hotel. And I've done a series of those jobs. I've worked in four or five different restaurants. And it was a really interesting thing for me that some of them you turned up and you thought, by the end of the first shift, you're like, I can't wait to see if I can make these people become my friends. Yeah. And some of these people are going and hanging out together and they seem so funny and they seem like so full of life. And, and there are other places where you turn up and you think, okay, this is just going to be a job. Don't get to know people. This is just got a strange energy to it. And what really surprised me is when I joined long-term jobs where I was doing them 40 hours a week, I was just surprised that the same things applied, that you know, there were some good places, there were some really bad places. I was just interested in the mechanics of that. Why should mm. some places be good to work at? And there were strange things like one person would leave and the whole energy of a company would change. And it was often wasn't the boss. It was like just one team member would leave. And it's like, ah, oh, it's not the same. It doesn't feel mm. the same. And I love that feeling as a participant. And I love that feeling to how, how can any of us try and orchestrate this? How can you make it better? You work at somewhere and you're like, can we try and get the culture going a bit better? Can we try and make this a bit more fun? I love it. I, for me, a good day at work was laughing 12 times. And I tell you what, along, along the way, I've just heard some brilliant stories. I met one, I went, went into one organization. I was chatting about culture and they said, oh yeah, our receptionist changed our culture. 
And I was like, okay, right, give me more details. And they said, Brilliant. yeah, our receptionist um, was an actor between jobs. She was, she'd, you know, go and do three months on EastEnders and then she'd come back or she, she'd go and do pantomime and then she'd come back. And, uh, and one of the sessions that she was there, she said, I have to tell you, this is maybe the worst culture I've ever worked in. And no one seemed willing to change it. So she took it into her own hands and mm. she went out and she bought four tubes of Pringles, some bags of kettle chips, some skips. She laid them all out on paper plates and she sent an email around the company saying, ladies and gentlemen, it's the best time of the week. It's crisp Thursday. And it became this sort of little ritual that at 4.30, only because of her force of personality, 4.30 every Thursday, they would, um, everyone would sort of down tools, put their keyboards aside and go and have some crisps for 10, 15, 20 minutes. But it became a big part of how the company operated. Good time for it as well, 4.30 on a Thursday. And I just love that because it just reminds you really that culture isn't necessarily owned by bosses. It's owned by all of us, really. Mm. Absolutely. Let me, let, me, let me sort of tap into that a bit. So we, you've talked about sort of the rituals and the practices and, and the way other people make you feel. What other things do you believe contribute to sort of you know, making work enjoyable? And are these universal things, do you think? There are a few universal things to it. You know, one of the, the big jargony words that a lot of people use is, is this phrase, psychological safety. Mm. Yeah. And the idea that that's the idea that, you know, productive disagreement or the fact that we can we can speak candidly to each other without consequence. And the truth of it is, is that culture normally exists at a team level rather than at a company level. So, you yeah. know, you might be able to have psychological safety with the four, five, six people that you work with. that You can speak candidly yeah. to each other about problems. But you know that you know, when it comes to the big boss or when it comes to another department, you've got to be a bit more careful. So those things are natural. Those things are pretty common. But the best cultures normally have a good degree of psychological safety. And then, you know, probably the thing that really characterizes really strong cultures is a, a sense of social cohesion, a sense of connection, a sense of of a bond between you. So you can have psychological safety, but there's no sense of affinity you know connection Mm. bond you you don't feel a sense uh that you know you're part of something together and and i think the best cultures have a strong sense that we're all in it together um the the way that we're working right now that there are some cultures that are a bit more transactional and actually you know for some things that's completely fine so you might have someone who works with you that you never see them but they do some marketing assets for you or they, they help organize some things you don't need to be best friends with them you don't need to be strongly connected. Actually, a transactional relationship works well. But the best cultures normally have a sense that it transcends that. There is a degree of friendship with people. And the yeah. best cultures generally do have a degree of that. We've yeah. certainly we've talked about that, haven't we, in the past. We, we've certainly experienced that ourselves. Who do, you, who do you think sort of bears responsibility then for making those cultures kind of engaging and enjoyable? Is it, you know, is it the boss? Is it me? Is it the team? Is it all of us? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, th- I think critically, we've all got to recognise the part that we play in it. Um, and it's very easy when culture is not going very well or, you know, it's very easy to have toxic cultures where, you know, there's a clique that talks about things or they seem to be speaking candidly to each other but then gossiping behind everyone. You know, so so those things are often, they can be shaped by bosses but they bosses aren't always responsible for them and i think mm. i think the more that we recognize that we are all participants in a culture yeah everybody has an influence on the culture and the teams that they work in for sure 
Tell me both your experiences of this. Like, you know, I love hearing best teams you've worked in. Why was it? What were the things that characterised them? I love hearing sort of other perspectives. So I'm relatively early in my um, in my career. I had you know a few sort of like you were saying bar jobs and restaurant jobs and um, worked at Wimbledon a couple of times. But I think for me actually at the moment the um, feeling that we have in our office is actually brilliant. And in comparison to loads of my friends who were all in a mix of jobs and positions, I'm the one that is in the office the most you know we're sort of in four days a week and I think we all really enjoy coming in whereas they have things of going in once or twice a week and it being a bit of a chore to go in because for lots of us being hit by COVID sort of more or less as we came out of uni our experience of that connectedness with colleagues is different to what Mm. I think you know you would have had when you first left uni we laugh a lot. Like you were saying, you know, laughing 12 times a day makes a good day at the office. And I think we, we definitely have that at times. But what were your thoughts, Jess? I, I just think my looking back over my now quite a long career, I, I, there are definitely some kind of key things, some themes that keep emerging, one of which is humour and laughter for sure. Yeah. It, the relationships I have with people, the, the sense that I feel trusted and trust others, I think mm-hmm. is, is is pivotal. There have often been individuals that have, through their behaviour, sometimes more senior to me, sometimes peers and colleagues that have been an inspiration. I Thank have, you. <laughs> <laughs> that, I've, that I've warmed to and that have brought the best out in me. I think my work has been most enjoyable as well in the past when I have felt that there's some sense of meaning and a purpose, a, a feeling that what we do matters to other mm. people and makes a difference somehow to people's quality of life or their experience of their days. I think that has been consistently there when I've found work most enjoyable. Yeah. And when I've been at my most stressed and most uncomfortable, when that's, that's been absent. Yeah, Or I felt um, a fraud for turning up and earning money because I'm not actually contributing anything or what we're doing collectively is of very little value. Bruce, how important is purpose for most people whose work either isn't a higher calling or directly connected to some, you know, big worthy intent? How can they you know, access meaning if if that is important? Yeah, look, uh, you know, I've, I've got a sort of um, a view where this actually can matter a great deal, but it's often mm. so completely misappropriated by firms that it becomes a bit of a distraction. So when you find bosses saying, here's what the purpose is, or here's what the purpose of organisation, it generally fails. And I've been at lots Mm. of conferences where bosses are like, we're a purpose-driven organisation, our purpose is this. And I'll give you one example of that. There's um, there's a big washing powder company, and I was at a conference that they were saying, our purpose is to let every child in the world play freely. And it's because when they play freely, their clothes get dirty, but our washing powder lets clothes become clean. And I tell you what, yeah, great. Love it. That's a marketing slogan. I don't Mm. think anyone who works there is honestly telling their mum when they go home, oh, yeah, but our purpose, mum, is to let every kid in the world play. No, they're not. They're not saying Mm. that. And so someone I, I know, a business professor, and, and the one thing, a guy called Dan Cable, and he says, you know, purpose can be found, but it can't be given. And I generally subscribe to that, actually. The reason why often workers seem disconnected from that is because it's not meaningful to them. So generally, mm. I think identity plays a bigger part than 
than purpose. Most of us want to work for an organization that we feel reflects well on our identity. So if we can mm. talk about it with pride, if we can talk about it and um, we feel there's something that reflects well on us, then I think that identity plays a much bigger part. So I tend to believe that, you know, if we can shape identities that we're proud of, it has more impact than purpose, in my view, personally. I couldn't agree with you more. Yeah, it's interesting. I think, and certainly the work that we do with clients, you know, those that create a space where, you know, what I stand for, what I believe in, what I value as an individual is reflected in how the organisation behaves. That's the sweet spot Mm. where I think you get those levels of engagement and connection between people that can really transform you know what happens and and what they're able to do together this is kind of reminding me of um so bruce last year i did a um dissertation about organizational change through covid and sort of lessons learned from it and in speaking to all the all of the participants in the interviews one of the biggest things that came through as a theme and was one of my findings of the research was this sense of purpose and identity and a common goal that everybody was after both in a level Mm. of we need to be safe and we need to look after our people. And the fact that everybody could connect to that and were all striving to achieve that meant that they were able to do things at the pace and speed, meant that everybody was aligned and on board with the same thing. And what they achieved in terms of the way organisations shifted drastically at that moment in time was incredible. So it is really powerful what that sense of identity and purpose combined together, I think, can can do. Really important catalyzing moment, wasn't it, at that? You, you, yeah. Exactly as you say there, Amelia. This, um, there were so many organisations that felt in that moment that they were all mobilised, they all had a clear sense of what they could do. So everyone was gifted a little bit of autonomy to try and shape things. And I, I think a lot of what the, um, the teething problems of remote working and hybrid working over the last couple of years have been that people have lacked that. They've not felt that sense of mobilisation. And that's where I think a little bit of the collective team cohesiveness has has also made work feel a little bit more disconnected. You haven't had that mobilising necessity. You've not necessarily had a a sense of a strong bond. The, The more we can think about those things, I think, You've spoken yourself about being in the office together and, and that forming some some degree of cohesion. But I think some organisations just need to work out how are we going to make us feel like a team? Now, in the past, a short-term purpose has really helped. But, you know, are we always going to have that sense of emergency of the, la- the alarm yeah. bells flashing? How are we going to achieve that in normal times? And I think that's the really interesting challenge. We talk a lot, don't we, with our clients about the sort of the, the balance that they strike between activity that you describe as social whether that's having lunch together or crisp thursday to go back to to Mm -hmm. your example doing the work per se the job of work and then just time for pure playfulness as well and the importance that that absolutely has for us as human beings just to sort of invest time in in activity for the pure joy of it without Mm. necessarily searching for other other outcomes and i have a suspicion i don't know how true this is being disconnected, either remote working or hybrid working, has meant that the focus has tended to be on getting the work done when we interact with others and less and less about the more 
playful social sides of things. And certainly in, in our client work, issues around kind of workload and, and burnout seem to be fairly prevalent. They seem to be fairly common themes. And I, I suspect this is because that an unintended consequence of not yeah, being absolutely. in each other's company as much as perhaps we once were is a missed opportunity to invest time and energy into those more social and playful activities. Mm. Absolutely. And look, you know, you've explored in the past uh, um, the, the importance of, of laughter, you know, laughter and feeling connected to other people is a really part, important part of that. So, you know, the, the playful part, I guess, to some extent, is daunting for some people because they're like, oh, we're really busy. How are we going to do be playful? Mm. But just the, the very fact of trying to ensure that when you are together, it feels a bit different. The, a friend of mine works in a North London hospital and she uh, they have 10 minutes set aside every day for training. So, you know, constant on the job training or best practice. And she realized that they weren't using these 10 minutes every day. And so in some of the 10 minutes, she brought in little improv games that they use in theater. Or ah. in some of them, she used little, uh, you know, things like rock, paper, scissors tournaments or, yeah. or um, there's, there's other games that you can play where one person in the room is the bum and the other person, and you have to sort of walk around the room. Anyway, she introduced these games. And she she just said it was transformational in just a very simple sense. And she described something to me that I loved, which was they played this tournament game of rock, paper, scissors. And one woman won and she jumped up onto a chair and she sang the Colombian national anthem because she'd won it. And everyone was Brilliant. like, wow, what is that? And, she says, <laughs> you know, and it made them realize that that this woman who worked with them all the time, oh, she's Colombian. They didn't know where she was from. They never knew. Oh, I'd love to hear someone else's national anthem. And so that sort of silly bit, it feels trivial. It feels like, you know, you're really busy. There's long waiting lists. You've got patients outside. But if you can use a moment of some degree of downtime, often it has a disproportionate benefit. You know, it might feel yeah. like a Massively. waste of time, but it's been in service of making people feel like they like each other a bit more. Bruce, we read in the business press, certainly the engagement surveys that we're privileged to see through our clients and what have you, lots of these things seem to suggest that people's enjoyment of work, or at least their ability to enjoy work, is for some reason declining. Why do you think that might be? Often one of the things that makes you feel anxious, overwhelmed with your jobs is a lack of control. So if you open your diary, your calendar, and you've got back-to-back -back meetings all day, or you've got an inbox or a Slack message uh, box, which is is sort of full of messages and pings, and you feel like you never get to the end of it, um, then that absence of control often serves to make us feel, well, the, the, the opposite of control is helpless. And, you know, mm. at the moment we're in a state of helplessness, it's one of the most affecting things. It creates high levels of anxiety. It's sort of high levels of stress. And so that's it. So, you know, I had a situation when I was working at Twitter where people were quitting with, with no job to go to or we had a high quit rate. And I'd chat to people and say, what could we have done to keep you? And, and people would say, look, I just feel overwhelmed. I've got 25 hours of meetings a week. I've got 200 emails a day. I just don't feel I can cope with the, the demands upon me. And we were losing our best people, you know, like mm. if these people are telling us the reason why they're quitting is it feels too much and we're doing nothing, then look at everyone you still rate here. So look at everyone who you value. They're going to go next. We have to change it. And so we set about thinking, well, what can we do to change it? And so we set about trying to 
half the amount of time we spent in meetings. And it's really hard. We probably reduced our meetings by about 30%. But it's that absence of control that for a lot of people, that sense of they're overwhelmed and helpless, that's one of the things that's making work so toxic for them, so overwhelming. Mm. And so unless you're going to change something, that will remain, I think. Absolutely. And that's hard. I mean, you know, in those situations, it's hard to get the best work out of the people and the talent that you've got there in the room. You know, having somebody at the end of their week be able to tell you that they have 100% attendance to all their meetings and that's the only thing they've achieved isn't isn't going to do the company huge benefit when they've got talent and creativity and other areas to go and give it a go. I did um, I did some work with one organisation last month and I said to them, anyone here spend more than 15, 20 hours a week in meetings? And the woman said, look, I'm going to stop you. We all spend 40 hours a week in meetings. And, wow. Uh, oh my word. All in meetings. It gives, it gives me chest pain. I know. <laughs> they were all, well, one, one woman had had a serious brain injury actually that she was attributed oh, to this yeah. working regime mm. so they were all in these meetings I was like, okay right so let's work out how we can reduce the amount of time we spend in meetings they're like sorry we're not willing to do that we need to do these meetings it's like okay you're in 40 hours a week of meetings someone here has like got an injury from stress everyone here feels overwhelmed and you're not willing to change anything here's the news anything nothing's going to get better Unless no. you're willing to change something, I'm not going to be able to suddenly bring along a magic eraser and delete Absolutely. all of your stress by giving you sort of four little mantras to say. You can't change things unless you're willing to change things. And so, you know, I think that's the, the critical lesson for people, really. What organisations have you seen who are g- getting it right and what are they doing differently to, you know, the ones, obviously, the 40-hour week meetings but you know who who is getting it right out there have you got any examples to share yeah i mean like i think it's a real time for experimentation uh, i think you know the more autonomy that's given to small teams the the more effective it seems to be so you know allowing a team to shape how it works you've spoken yourself familiar about um the benefit of being around colleagues and i think mm. if you're going to have office time having that as coordinated office time. So I was chatting to someone uh, yesterday who told me that their company is two days a week in the office, but choose your days. And what's happening is like, the majority of the offices are going in sort of Wednesday, Thursday. Uh, the people who really don't want to see anyone are going in Monday, Friday. <laughs> <laughs> and so you've got this environment Carnage. where... Carnage, <laughs> yeah. yeah. What's the point of that? I mean, well done. You've used the office all week. But what's the point of that? You've sort of yeah. you've forced the people who don't want to see their colleagues to go in on a day where they don't see their colleagues, but they're still 40 quid out of pocket for the travel or whatever. Yeah. You know, uh, what's the point? And so you're far better in that instinct saying, okay, we think time when people are face-to-face seems to have some benefit. Here's what we're going to do. Our anchor day is Tuesday. Or our anchor day is Monday or Wednesday. We're going to name one day that everyone has to be in and build from there, really. So Mm. um, generally, the best organizations are experimenting. There's a lot of organizations I've seen who have experimented with meeting-free days or with anchor days or meeting-free days or just specific ways to try and work out what's our problem we're trying to solve? How do we build from there? Bruce, I've got to ask you, it would be remiss of me not to. As a, as a former member of the Twitter executive committee uh, here in Europe and beyond, how do you feel about what's happening at Twitter now from a cultural point of view? Um, 
I'm, I'm not bothered when it, the fact that I've worked there, the, the, my main interest in this is I use the product a lot. And so I use the product a lot when I was there. I use the product a lot now. And I use it to follow news. I use it to follow tennis. I just think the guy's a, a clown. He's a, he's a... thought you were going to say something else. <laughs> <laughs> he used that as well. Yeah. Uh, um, no, we, we're so willing to ascribe a master plan to people like Elon Musk in the way that we wouldn't to other people. And it, mm. I, I don't know whether we're, we're sort of willing to, maybe because he's had a track record of proving people wrong, we're willing to say, oh, he must know things that we don't know. So, you know, when you talk to former colleagues and friends that perhaps some are still there and, you know, all that hard work that you did when you ran Twitter in the UK, is there a sense of disappointment, regret that that, that work is unravelling or? Well, culture changes from moment to moment really and, and and I guess you know my feeling was when I was there the people I worked directly with our objective was okay we want people in five years to recognize that this was their favorite ever job and so some of that was making sure people had the autonomy to make decisions they felt that there was there was little rules along the way where when we were first getting going, there was maybe 20, 30 of us. And the rule was, if something goes wrong and you've tried your best and you've, you've done what you think is right, then the rule is feel free to blame me. Feel free to blame Bruce. Philosophy is, something goes wrong, we get in trouble with America, blame Bruce. Bruce said I had to do it. And what you ended up with is, I very rarely got blamed for things, but it just gave people the freedom to feel mm. like I can, I can make that decision, I can do that, I can do what's right. Because they knew that, okay, well, if I've done my best, I'm not going to be fired for it. Someone else will take responsibility for it. So our view was, look, you know, create a good culture where people can feel like they're doing their best ever job. And look, you know, as a result of that, loads of people contact me from there all the time going, I just want to find a job that was as enjoyable as when I had that job. I loved it so much. And look, you know, for me, it's back to that thing, you know, a good job is when you're laughing 12 times a day and, and when you feel a sort of sense of bond and connection with people. What sort of practical tips um, and advice do you have for individuals who want to derive more joy both for themselves and their colleagues and the time they spend at work? I know you've spoken about laughing. and Yeah, I think, you know, generally we participate more when we feel like we've got a stake in something. Um, mm-hmm. And by that I mean that, you know, have we all contributed to the rules that the team's got? Have we all had a say in why we do things a certain way? And and you, you witness this, big companies, small companies, if people feel like they've had a shaping a role shaping the culture, they're far more willing to feel fully committed to it. There's this a philosophy about work, which is it's sometimes called theory X, theory Y. And theory X is that workers can't be trusted and you have to give them a a firm set of rules and you have to strictly manage them and you have to give them all these guidelines and theory why is workers innately want to do a good job and just tell them what they should be doing and let them come up with the way to do mm. it in their own way and unleash this idea yeah. Sh- yeah should we trust workers or not trust workers and the, and the strange thing about theory x theory y is whichever you believe is is what will happen if you don't trust yeah. workers you give them a load of guidelines loads of restrictions then i tell you what they will behave in a way where they need guidelines and if Mm. you give workers a really clear sense of what they can get done a real clear sense of the scope they'll they'll step up and they'll deliver for it now i think we can trust people more 
But with culture, the more that people feel like they've had a part in shaping it, the more likely they are to be active participants in it. I think it's a sort of a critical lesson there, really. Bruce, thank you so much for your time. Yes, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. I found that really, really interesting. As we were just talking to Bruce then, Jez, what did you what did you take away? So it's a topic that's really close to our hearts at Just Add Water, isn't it? And I, I'm always really keen to talk to other people who share our passion for creating more enjoyable and you know ultimately productive environments. Absolutely. Um, you know, I loved Bruce's curiosity when it comes to exploring every opportunity to make work better for ourselves and for those around us, right down to that lovely example of the sort of micro moments of improv that can connect and energise Yeah, us. definitely. And I suppose thinking about our own work culture at Just Add Water and just reflecting on some of the things that Bruce was talking about, you know, I really, I believe strongly that my identity, the things that I believe in, that I value, are reflected back at me by you guys. Um, mm. And I also feel that we've We've all got loads of control over what we do and when and how we do it. So it's no surprise, perhaps, then, that work for me is, by and large, a really, really enjoyable experience. Good. Good. (laughs) (laughs) You sound surprised, Vegas. (laughs) Yeah, no, I have to say I couldn't agree more. I also think that, for me, what stood out from what Bruce said um, was really reinforcing the fact that laughter is just a magic in terms of bringing us together you know even when you're up against deadlines and you're extremely stressed or you're in 40 hour meetings a week laughing through those moments can make it really enjoyable and manageable and you can keep going back to it and going back to those stressful moments and I think it just brought everything that we spoke to Neil about last episode and you know discussing humour it totally brought that to life so yeah really really great conversation so that's all from us for this episode please do hit the follow button And please leave us a review on whatever channel you are listening on. And if you have any suggestions on topics that you would like us to explore, or you would like to be a guest, or you want to talk to us about the work that we do, please do get in touch. As always, thank you for listening to the Being Human podcast. You've been listening to the Being Human podcast. Brought to you by Just Add Water. Nurturing individual brilliance. Forging collective strength. Is you going to put your headphones on? I am. Sorry, just let me... Jez is just using his phone. I've got... Because he's turned into a Gen Z. It's of improv that that can connect and energize. (laughs) Energize. Energize. (laughs) Get tired after I hope you recorded that. I sure did. Did you get that? Brilliant. (laughs) There we go. And we're back in the room. Madame Bailey on the wheels of steel. (laughs) Vegas and Francis. (laughs) 